Well, we are continuing on in the book of Nehemiah. We are in week 17 out of an 18-week series, and this is some of the toughest preaching, teaching that I have done, uh, not because the topic is hard, but because um, I believe all Scripture points to Jesus, and this is one of those evenings. We're going to cover two full chapters um, where it's, it's a little bit difficult. So we're going to have to keep each other a bit excited. The Word of God is still the Word of God, even when it's um, going through lists and stuff like we've been going through in the last few weeks, and we'll continue to tonight. Uh, so it's powerful no matter what. We don't have to make excuses for it, but I'm going to do things a little bit different. Let me ask you, just to kick it off, if you were talking to a couple, they could be dating, they could be married, um, but just any two people in a relationship, you were going to ask, just take a poll, what is the greatest insecurity that people have in a relationship? What would you say? Trust. Yeah, it's huge. Anything else? Have you guys been in relationships before? I mean, if you sit and think about it, like, it all comes down to commitment issues. Not necessarily you being committed to them, but wondering, like, are they going to leave me? Are they going to be faithful to me? Are um, they going to love me even when I'm unlovable? What if I'm not good enough? What if um, they're not good enough? Like, a whole bunch of it comes down to, as you said, trust issues and revolves around commitment issues. We want security. If you've ever been in a relationship where you felt like it was unstable, that you couldn't trust the person that you were with. Um, maybe you felt like you couldn't trust yourself. That's a miserable place to be. Amen? It's, it's unpleasant to think uh, that this thing is unstable because we've got so much else going on in life that we want to come home. We want to be with people who are stable. We want to feel stability in relationships. And we tend to project, as you guys know, um, the experiences that we have on earth onto our experience with our Heavenly Father. And so sometimes we feel like, well, maybe God will leave me if I screw up. Maybe I'm just one sin away. If I really make another mistake, there's no way he could forgive me. Like he's forgiven me a whole bunch of times, but he's not going to forgive me this one more time. And we feel insecure and we struggle. Um, it's not a good feeling. But here's the good news. All throughout the Bible, you will see two huge themes. And Nehemiah is no different. You see the theme of God's people being unfaithful and God himself being faithful. Over and over and over and over, you see this theme. So much so that there's an entire book of the Bible all about faithfulness. You guys know which prophet, minor prophet, this is? Hosea. Remember Hosea's story? For anyone who likes to separate ministry life from home life, you wouldn't like Hosea. Because Hosea is told to go and marry a prostitute. So he gets this gal named Gomer. And he marries her. They have three kids. And one's named Jezreel, because that's a place where there was going to be blood shed. And then another one was named No Mercy. And then another one of the kids was to be named Not My People. 
If you thought <laughs> you had a hard time with your kids, picture that uh, scenario. And so he's got these three kids that are all supposed to represent three judgments against Israel. And God's saying, I want your personal life to reflect what the Israelites have done to me. Because he paints this picture between uh, humanity and himself, God himself, as a marriage. And he says, they have gone after other gods and they've been unfaithful this whole time. But I have stood steadfast and I've been faithful to them. And he compels them to come back. And so it's this book all about their unfaithfulness and his faithfulness. You see these two things all throughout scripture. And yet you and I on a daily basis, we have that struggle because we take the paradigm that we have with our earthly relationships. What if I don't measure up? What if I'm not good enough? What if I screw up one more time? Will that person leave me? And if you're anything like I have been in the past, you've feel that sometimes towards God and you wonder, will he leave me? When I was a new believer, I felt that on a regular basis. I thought that in my mind, like maybe, maybe I'm just going to screw this thing up. And so we're talking about kingdom commitment tonight. And we're going to be covering two full chapters. And it's not kingdom commitment in that we know that we're perfect and perfectly committed to the kingdom of God. No, it's that you and I are compelled to be committed to the kingdom of God because God has first been faithful to us. He is fully committed to us through the new covenant. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Um, just to keep you in the loop in case you haven't been with us, this is the um, outline for the book of Nehemiah. The first six, cha- six chapters are the building of the wall. So they were coming back to build the wall around Jerusalem. This is the big idea. Nehemiah is the governor, the leader of this. And then Chapters 8 through 10 were all about spiritual revival. Ezra brings out the word of God. He's that guy that shows up to the party and says, let's pull out our Bibles, put the drinks away, let's do things right. And he is the buzzkill that turns into an amazing spiritual revival for the people because they realize we were in exile for a long time and this was all foretold in God's word. Um, You would think that they would be just completely broken, and they were, but there was good news, which we're going to focus on tonight, that made them... um, spiritually revived. And then verse, or excuse me, chapters 11 through 13 are all about them coming and resettling Jerusalem and organizing the community and setting up the temple and all that good stuff. And so tonight, it's important for you to know as we walk through these two chapters, um, that even though the Israelites had the word of God spoken to them, and they were, they found out that they had sinned against God in all these different ways, they are pumped. And if you don't know this background story, then you'll lose the power of this whole passage because they should not be pumped. They're going to resettle Jerusalem, and it says over and over they got joy. They're excited. But, again, the context is because God has been faithful, and God has not given up on them, and they are passionate about that, and that's what prompts and compels their commitment. So by the end of tonight, I hope that... um, that that theme is um, alive and well in your heart. This is going to be a different kind of message. I'm going to try to get you involved a bit. We're going to rifle through a whole bunch. And if you are a note taker, you scribble down sub points and all that good stuff, you're going to be scribbling a lot. Um, Again, this was a little bit hard uh, to prep for and teach. And you'll find out real quick why. Um, But I'm going to teach a passage of lists with lists. You'll find out. Let's jump in. If you got a Bible... Feel free to open it up. Um, I'm not going to have the verses on the screen because there's just a ton of them. So um, if you got a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 11. And we're going to cover, we're going to have three points tonight because I'm Southern Baptist. And 
Nobody laughed. Okay. And the first one is going to cover a chapter and a half. So let's get to reading. Tara, before we came over here, I stopped by the house and she said, um, are you going to read all the verses? And I was like, yeah, I think so. She's like, oh. And I was like, well, you don't think I should? Does it take too long? She's like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I get why you do it, but whatever. And we just kind of looked at each other for a moment. And so I'm going to read all the verses. And I know Tara doesn't, doesn't want me to read all the verses. She tried. She tried. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah and all his guys, they were living in Jerusalem. And they were, again, restoring Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. You ever see in the Old Testament, they cast lots. Like they're they're throwing dice to make decisions. Why in the world would they do that? Does God want us to do that today? Well, no, there's a huge difference in the Old Testament and New Testament between how God um, reveals things to us. Number one, they didn't have the word of God in the full sense that we do, right? They were in the middle of living the word of God. And so we have the word of God, all 66 books in its fullness. So God's, got, God's word guides us, but also his spirit. There's three big differences between God speaking to us with his Holy Spirit in the New Testament and Old Testament. In the New Testament, the spirit of God comes upon everyone who places their faith in Jesus. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God only came on some people, a select few. In the New Testament, and for us today, the Holy Spirit, when it comes in, uh, onto a person, into a person, it comes into, it dwells in us. In the Old Testament, it would come upon people. And then last but not least, in the New Testament, the Spirit of God um, stays with people, doesn't leave people. It seals people until we see God face to face. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people. It would be on the outside of people often, and it would come and go. And so there might be a time where, uh, for example, King Saul might have the Spirit of God on him, and then that Spirit is removed. And, well, if you know Saul's story, it didn't go terribly well for him. So why would they cast lots? Because they, um, they need guidance, but we don't need to do that same thing today. To bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So it's like, hey, we all live on beautiful farm country. Who wants to move into the city? And they're like, eh, nobody. And, but they cast lots, and some said, we'll willingly go. And so here's going to be a whole long list of some of those folks. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain Live certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Ephiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez, and, the, and Masiah, the son of Baruch, and Kolhazah, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joreb, son of Zechariah, son of Shilonite. And all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. So there's little details in here that we're going to pick apart in a bit. Um, but valiant men would be one of them. Verse 7, and these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshelam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Kaliah, son of Messiah, son of Ethiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. And Joel, the son of Zikri, which was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was second over the city. Now, of the priests... Jediah, the son of Jorib, Jachin, Zariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Moriah, son of Ahithatib, 
ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adiah, the son of Jeroham, son of Peliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Peshur, son of Malchajah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amasai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshulamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Adil, the son of Hagadolam, and of the Levites. New segment here. Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, son of Azakaram, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, son of Shabbatai, and Josabad, and the of the chiefs of the Levites who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Matthiah, Mathaniah, and son of the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, so you might recognize Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks, and Bacchabukiah, the second among the brothers, and Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galil, son of Jeduthon, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. So he mentions holy city a couple times. Jerusalem is not mentioned holy city like that in most of the other scriptures. So that's interesting. The gatekeepers. So these are all things regarding the temple. Akub, Tom, verse 19. Talmon and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel and all the priests and the Levites were in the towns of Judah. Everyone in his inheritance so they all had property, and this was their inheritance. But the temple servants lived in Ophiel, and Ziha and Gishpa were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashbiah, son of Mathaniah, son of Micah, and the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king, that's going to be important too, concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pedahiah, the son of Meshabal, and the sons of Zerah, Zerah, and the son, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. A whole other section about villages outside of Jerusalem. And it says, As for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Debon and its villages, and in Jacob Zeal and its villages, and in Jeshua and Moladah and Beth Polite, and Hazarashuol, and Beersheba, Beersheba and its villages, and Ziklag and Makona and its villages, and in Ruman, and Zora and Jarmuth, and Zenoa, Adolam, Adolam, and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekah and its villages. So they camped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom, and the people of ben- Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash. Ajah, Bethel, and its villages, Ananoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazar, Ramah, Gittim, Hidid, Zoboam, Nabalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen, and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. That's chapter 11. Chapter 12. <laughs> All right. Now it goes on to the priests and Levites. There are the priests and the Levites who came up from, with Zerubbabel, Zerub, the son of Shatil, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shachaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Ido, Gina, Thoi, Abajah, Magnum, Salu, Amuk, Hilkiah. Okay, these were the chiefs of the priests of the brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, verse 8, the Levites, Jeshua, Benai, goes on, who were with his brothers, was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. So very specific things. And Bacabuah, 
Micaiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, and Joachim the father of Elishib, and Elishib the father of Joida, and Joida the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jado. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Zeriah, Mariah, Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, Amariah, Jehoram, down in here, verse 17, same, 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 verse 19, same, 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 okay, verse 22. In the days of Eliashib, Johanna, were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of Chronicles. So if you look at Chronicles, um, First Chronicles, I believe, chapter 9, you'll see a similar list. Until the days of Johanan, the son of Elishib, and the chiefs of the Levites, verse 24, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. So they're going back not just to Moses, but David. That's what they discovered in the word of God, things that David did. That's a key part of this too. The man of God, watch by watch, goes on, um, were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. Okay, that was a good chunk. That was a good chunk of stuff. First thing we see, I got to get you back here. I got to get back into it. Bible lists, we read them, we don't know what to do with them. We've talked a good chunk about them in Nehemiah because there's a bunch of them. But here's the big idea. They paint a picture. So everyone's coming back. Bible lists, they're not only uh, historical, they're about real people, but they paint a picture uh, Tara and I, I told you last week that we have been um, selling everything we own pretty much um, just because we go through phases of liking to do stuff like that. We've been selling a bunch of stuff on Buy, Sell, Trade, and I had this old um, magazine rack. How many of you guys have a magazine rack? A couple of you. Not many people have magazine racks anymore. If you have one, you didn't purchase it yesterday. Right, you have probably have had it for a long time. So I thought, okay, this is actually a beautiful magazine rack for those who like stuff like this. This was handcrafted. A buddy gave it to me, and this was like ten years ago. We just never used it. We didn't have a use for it. Um, and all of our books are on here, and so we don't have a need for a magazine rack. And so anyway, we put it online, and we didn't get any hits at all. But then I got this one uh, little old lady who lives at a retirement community, and she said, is that still available? And I said, yes, yes, it is today. And, um, and she said, well, I want it. I'll take it. I'll come get it. And it was like 10 bucks, you know, for this thing. And I thought, okay, great. So I thought, well, a lot of times we'll have folks come to the house. If um, both of us are there and whatnot, we'll meet them out in the driveway. We used to go meet them separately, but if you sell enough stuff, sometimes you get a little lackadaisical. Anyway, I said, well, this is a little old lady. She's probably a sweet little old lady. I, she might feel comfortable, uncomfortable going to her house. So I'm going to bring it to the church and that'll probably make her feel Okay, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stereotyping in my mind, but she seemed like a nice little lady. And so she came here, and I saw uh, there's a gal driving her. And she's in the back seat. No one's in the back seat with her. And then there's another gal, obviously, driving, and no one's in the front seat. And I thought, oh, my, look at this, like, driving Miss Daisy. This is so sweet. Like, one little old lady driving another little old lady. They can't even sit in the front seat together. They're just, 
one in the front, one in the back, and I saw they had a little bit of a hard time getting out, and so I, I thought, okay, I'm going to go meet them, and so I ran down out of my office, and I went outside, and I said, you don't have to get out, you don't have to get out, and showed it to them, and they were um, just really friendly, just really nice, and I thought, oh, this is nice, and talking to these little old ladies, they seemed so sweet, and uh, one of them opened up her purse, and she took all her... Um, this, this money out. It was $10, but it's all in ones. And I thought, oh, what a sweet little old lady thing to do. Like, th- she's just a nice little old lady. And she she didn't, uh, she just looked like she was kind of a no-nonsense gal. And so um, she, I put the, I put the deal in her back seat and, and I was talking to her and she said, here you go, you know, and uh, sorry, they're all in ones. And she said, but you might want to count them. And so I started counting them. And and she said, sometimes they stick together. And she said it kind of funny. I looked over at her, and she she had her glasses sticking out. She looked at me. She said, especially right after I make them. And I was, <laughs> I was like, well, what? Are you grandma? Are you supposed to say that? Like, I just looked. I was caught completely off guard, like, especially after I make them. She's sitting in the back seat, driving around from a retired community, and she put her head up and cackled like she just makes jokes like that all the time. Like, what are you doing in that retirement community? Making $1 bills and <laughs> buying magazine racks? It didn't fit the narrative. I just thought, man, you ever hear that saying, don't judge a book by its cover? Like sometimes you got you to gotta get to know people. You got to dig in a little bit deeper. And so that's what we're going to do with this list. Let's dig in and find out um, why in the world God might put some of this in the Bible. And so I'm going to rifle off a good chunk of stuff. And then I'm going to ask you if there's things that you would add. And so we're going to basically just do two things. We're going to talk about, um, for all of these uh, points that we're talking about tonight, we're going to talk about what it means and just kind of highlight some things that we observe and then talk about what we should do with it. And so if you like lists, we got lists for you. Here's the big picture that it's painting. Number one, that they're setting up a nation. They're setting up a nation. What nation is that? Nation of Israel. Now, they're still under the Persian ruler, but they recognize themselves as God's chosen people. And so one thing they're doing in this chapter and a half, really the whole book, they are setting up a nation for themselves. This is important for us because I think the average Christian thinks, this is, I'm going to have to be careful how I say this. The average Christian thinks that God has somehow ordained the United States of America as being a Christian nation, as if we are God's chosen people. And so we get angry when laws change. And honestly, I think that okay, makes sense. I want the laws to reflect the Bible. We, we get angry when leadership, um, when they're not Christians, in the White House, when they're not Christians. And, and we, we find ourselves arguing and discussing this a lot. You go to any church, you'll find this kind of thing happening. Politics creep in and people talk about, well, we used to be a Christian nation and we, we took God out of the schools and we took God out of... And it's true, you look at the documents and many of those folks who, who came up with, um, you know, the founding fathers, they were believers regardless of what kind and whatnot, but they, they were believers. But the nation is set up to have freedom of religion, like, by design, you got choice. That's how it's set up. That's how it's set up. And it's very important for us to understand. Israel was a nation of God's chosen people with certain laws specific to them. This is one reason why when we go to Old Testament 
from Old Testament to New Testament, and we as Christians have questions like, so the Old Testament law, does it apply to us? Do we do it? And we recognize Old Testament law essentially in three different ways. It is civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. The moral law of God has not changed. The ceremonial law, because the temple doesn't exist anymore and we're not Jewish, it is not in place anymore. We don't need it. And the civil laws were for the nation of Israel, a very specific nation. We have been grafted into the promises, to the blessings of the Israelites, but we are not a chosen nation. I know this is a shock. I know this is a a sore spot for many people. Here's what we need to be concerned about. We need to be concerned about making disciples. There cannot be a nation by document Christian. Nations are a set of principles, a set of governing documents, a, a, a government. Ultimately, they don't have souls. Right? Like the nation is, it's, there's individuals within the nation who have souls. And so that's what I care about. That's what we need to care about is making disciples. But that's what the Israelites are doing. They're setting up a nation. Eventually, um, they would be a nation um, again. And they were prepping for that. Number two, they set up a city. And it says several times in that chapter and a half, a holy city. Again, Jerusalem wasn't mentioned um, in that way all the time. And it was unique here. They were talking about a holy city because they were pumped because their temple was being rebuilt. And they were setting up a specific city that was going to honor God. We think sometimes that, just in general in in society, that religions have like meccas, right? So um, the Muslims, they go to a certain place. Jews go to a certain place. Like there's holy places for people. Christians We are a holy people. We're not setting up a city. We're setting up a people. We are a nation of priests. So the the Spirit of God lives inside of us, not in any one location. That's why these four walls are not what we are building to house God. You are what God is building to house himself. And so they're setting up a city, but in the New Testament here, we're setting up a people. They're also setting up the church as they knew it. That's what they're doing. They're organizing the kingdom of God as they knew it. It's a physical kingdom, and it revolved around the temple. Now, a couple interesting parts about this. The whole picture of Nehemiah, it goes from at the beginning of Nehemiah, talking about individuals, and specifically Nehemiah. But now, one thing you see with lists is it teaches us about community. It teaches us that it's not about any one person, but all of them together. And you see all these names over and over and over and over and over. And it shows how, uh, ultimately... The church isn't made up of just one person. It's made up of community. And in this, if you go back at the end of chapter, um, well, about the middle part of chapter 11, it talks a bunch about worship. All these different guys, these characters coming in who are singers, uh, Asaph, um, these different people who were part of um, working in and around the temple. And it's all about worship being a priority. That's what they were doing. It also teaches us, this is the picture that these chapters are painting for us, But they had a good relationship with the governor. This is important. So ultimately, the king, or government is what I meant to say there, the king of Persia is still over them. And it said at the end of chapter 11, it talked about how there was an overseer. And it says, for there was a command from the king concerning them. Now, King David said things 100 years earlier about singers. That's what this context was. They were talking about singers. But it was the Persian king. 
who let them, actually sent provisions for them to sacrifice when the wall of Jerusalem was built. And so the Persians were in favor of the people in their land continuing to follow whatever religion they were. That's how Nehemiah got permission to come back and do this to begin with. But I think it's important to note, um, the big picture is they functioned as the church under another government. So for us, we function as the church under a government. You can complain about our government or you can pray for our government. You can say, well, we're not a Christian nation or you can make disciples so that the people, whether they're ruling or not, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Ultimately, there will be, the kingdom of God is spiritual in the sense that it's in our hearts. Jesus is the king right now. It will be physical when he comes back and he reigns. There isn't going to be a president, Jesus. There's a king, Jesus. So we're not looking for the next amazing Christian president who's going to somehow make us a Christian nation. We're looking for the church to be the church regardless of what government they're under. And we're going to make disciples until King Jesus comes back. You guys aren't as excited about that as I am. In no way, shape, or form am I saying, do I hope that we do immoral things or that we aren't, um, or that we have laws or whatnot that, that are not of God. I hope they all line up with God. My hope, though, is not in our civil government. My hope is in King Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And the church needs to, to know um, what we're about. Number five, the picture this chapter and a half paints is that God's people, and they had order, they had unity, and they had sacrifice. Everything was very orderly, very planned out. They had unity. It said earlier um, when they cast lots that they were thankful for the people who um, stepped up and, and they all left the towns and they came, or many of them left the towns and came to Jerusalem. That was a sacrifice. It was a privilege and yet a sacrifice for them to move from their towns into Jerusalem. Picture this. You got beautiful farmland. This is the promised land. You were given this. And someone comes up to you and says, Hey, see that city up there? Yeah, the one that earlier in this book was threatened over and over and over again with violence by everyone who lived around it. Would you like to leave your your vineyard and your farmland and your inheritance and go live in that city? There's a reason why it said uh, several times, men of valor, mighty men. Because they knew if you come and live here, you you better be prepared to fight because Jerusalem they were at that point in time thinking we could be under siege at any time. It was a sacrifice, but they did it. Number six, it also shows several generations of exiles. That's the picture painted. You miss it if you don't stop and think. But at the very beginning of chapter 12, it talks about Zerubbabel who helped build the temple with Ezra. But it says these are the priests and the Levites who are with them. And then down below it says Joachim. And in the days of Joachim, these were two separate exiles. So this is not just all the people who came back with Nehemiah. There were several exile returns before that. And so this is several generations of people getting together saying, you came back 20 years ago? I've been back 40 years. I came back 40 years ago and I never thought we would rebuild the wall. This is amazing. Well, I showed up five weeks ago and and at the end of this thing, and I'm just here and I'm excited to be here. And all these generations are getting together like, wow, this this is beautiful. It's intergenerational. And seven, it points to the lineage of Jesus. You see, the first Chronicles 9 passage, which shows a similar list, shows um, more tribes. But this one does not. Understand this, big picture. This is, I don't know, this is probably boring to you guys, but it's important that, that you know some of this. How many tribes were in Israel? Twelve. It's, yeah. Um, 
So you have King Saul, you have King David, and then you have Solomon, right? That was what we call the United uh, Kingdom or the United Monarchy. After that, Solomon, his kid, and then a whole several other commanders split the kingdom up in 930 BC and it became the divided kingdom. From 930 BC to 722, all 12 tribes, they were still existing together, but there was northern Israel and they had about 20 kings. All of them rejected God. Then there was southern Israel. We call it Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin. And they had Jerusalem, but they were much smaller and they had every other king reject God. So northern Israel never had kings that liked God. Southern Israel, they had kings that every other one liked God. So God said in 722, northern Israel, you're done. The Assyrians came in. That's who Jonah went to go preach the good news to. The Assyrians come in. They beat up on, um, they beat up on northern Israel. To this day, we do not know where the ten tribes of northern Israel are. You can read a thousand blogs, a thousand people. Some say they're in Russia. Some say they're the Japanese. Some say they're Native American. Some say, I mean, it goes on and on and on. But they intermarried to the point where we're not sure exactly what happened to them. But God speaks all throughout the Bible about a remnant. He's always keeping a remnant, a remnant, a remnant. And the Messiah is going to come through this remnant. That was Judah, right? King David, tribe of Judah. Jesus, through that tribe. So in 587, that's when the Babylonians came and the southern Israel, they went into exile. Judah went into exile, and this is what they're returning from. So you got three um, specific tribes that were mentioned. You got, well, you got Benjamin, Judah, and you got the Levites, who were essentially the priests. They're mentioned here. Why is that important? Why does it point to Jesus? Because it's showing in all of this reorganizing of of the temple and people coming back to Jerusalem that even though there's lots of tribes out there that have intermarried and we don't know exactly where they are, those who Jesus is coming through, those who the Messiah is coming through, the tribe of Judah, he's still here. And God's got his remnant. And that's why those are very, very important because it talks about um, the priests. (laughs) Because if they didn't have any Levites, they wouldn't have any priests. What are you going to do with the temple if you ain't got any priests? Because not anyone could just be a priest. And if you don't have Judah, then you don't have the Messiah anymore. He's not coming through because they were promised. Uh, The prophet said he's coming through that line. So that's very, very, very important. What's the takeaways? What do we need to do with this? Number one, I think we need to plant more churches. (laughs) It, It excites me to see God's people unified and sacrificing around this common goal for God's kingdom to be established. And ultimately, Um, If you've never been part of a church plant, it's a beautiful thing. You think about the beginning of chapter 11, and they're all together. They're like, okay, we all got our land out here, and we can come to the temple and worship when we need to, but we just want to stay out here and live our lives and be comfortable and normal. But Jerusalem is the hot spot. You might get killed if you go there. It might come under attack, but man, that's where the good stuff is of God. That's where the temple's going to be. And so we're like, okay, let's cast lots. It's like, you know what? We're going to step up. We're going to do this. Welcome to church planning. (laughs) We could stay in our comfort zone. We could be in a place where, hey, you know what? It's easy to be a Christian right now, or it's easy to be at this church where, um, you know, they, they don't necessarily need me, even though everyone's valuable and, and it's more of a perception, uh, a feel. Well, I don't feel like I'm needed. To, then to go from that to a place where you're going to be on the front lines of ministry, you're going to be like, wow, we have to really depend on God. We have to, we're, we're this, there's nothing here. There's no church. Like, we're starting this. We're preaching the gospel. And you go through all the beauties and ups and downs of a church plant. Um, I mean, that's Terranized history. We've been part of 25,000 member Thomas Road Baptist Church in 
Lynchburg, Virginia, we've been a part of mega churches, but we've been a part of little tiny churches. We've planted churches. And to see, um, to see the beauty of taking the gospel and uh, establishing churches in places where it's not or where it's very few um, is a beautiful thing. Number two, so I challenge you. Um, I mean, we're still essentially a church plant here at Cross Point Salina. But as we talk about planting in Abilene and Minneapolis and Ellsworth, you might be on one of those teams. God might call you to do that. Several folks went to Lindsburg to help get that started. Number two, it's important, I think, one takeaway is for us to see ourselves in a long line of God's people. Sometimes you think about your own life and you think about what God's doing in your life and what you should be doing, and you just have such a myopic view of your relationship with God. You are in a long, long, long line through Moses, through David, through the exiles, through Jesus, of people who have come to know the Word of God and want to do what's right. This isn't just millions of people worldwide today. This is hundreds and thousands of years of people. That's a beautiful thing. Always keep that big picture perspective. Number three, I think it's important to recognize what we can accomplish when we have unity and sacrifice. Man, you know what? This whole building thing that we're doing, this purchase, this uh, building facility that we're purchasing, it's got the capacity, if we as a church let it, to divide us or to unify us. Tons of people have stories about things going sour when a church gets new facilities. Tons of people have stories of a church being united when they got new facilities. It's a divider or a uniter. In and of itself, it's neutral, right? We're the ones who choose. But to me, when we get into this thing, we need to fight hard for unity. We're in a place right now where it feels like we can let our guard down. We put the offer in. We're in contract mode at the end of next week. Next Friday is when we're supposed to close on this thing. And for some, maybe it's just me behind the scenes, there was a moment where we felt like we can catch our breath. And I was reminded immediately, no, this is where the devil is going to come. This is where people are going to really get involved. This is where the devil is going to want to divide us. But we need to work together. We need to build camaraderie. I hope people get drawn in in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. There can be so many benefits and beautiful things that take place um, in, in this building. The kingdom of God can be built spiritually when we're working on that physical building, and I hope um, that we all have that same heart and mind. And last but not least, number four, we need to reflect the God of order. God is a God of order. This whole book teaches us about God's people being organized and that's not random. God's a God of order. He comes into your chaos, but he brings order. Um, I see this. I saw this in myself, and I see it in young men a lot. But I think all of us can struggle with it. We have spiritual revival. We open up the word of God, regardless of what age you're at. You see it, and you see these beautiful truths, and then you see your local church, and you think, well, we're not living this out. And then you start saying, like, well, I'm against organized religion, because that's probably the problem. So we start hating churches that have buildings. We start hating churches that have logos and that have big worship services. And we start despising the bride of Christ. And we start to think, well, I got to be part of this underground movement, you know, where other critics like me can get together and say, we got to get back to the basics. And there needs to be, there's always, like that, that's a, that can be a beautiful thing. And there's going to be people who, who go down that route. But what you see a lot of people do is become critics and stay critics. And 
it's very important that we understand, even in America, you might not like small church. You might not like big church. You might not like how your local church does everything. None of them are perfect. But if you find yourself hating the bride of Christ, regardless of what size they are, regardless of how organized they are, you've got to understand organized religion to some degree is reflecting a beautiful attribute of God and that he is a God of order. And if you think, no, the only way we can do it is if the Spirit leads us to have this underground Bible study and then we're just going to do whatever the Spirit tells us. Hopefully that's what your local church is wanting to do too. But it's organized with godly leaders and the Bible and there's, there's, there's things that God has put in place to make that a healthy thing and not just a bunch of rogue Christians who have rejected the bride of Christ and yet think they're somehow the perfect remnant that's doing everything right. There's a bunch of young people who are in that boat. I was in that boat. I could have stayed in that boat. But I'm thankful that God um, didn't let me stay in that boat. Before we move on, the rest of this is obviously a lot shorter than the section we just covered. Anything that you would add? Anything from that chapter and a half that you would add to that? Anything that comes to mind as we're talking about this? kind of hard to teach. I've said that a couple times. This one's difficult. The second thing we see is we've got to celebrate God's work. If you want to stay committed to the Lord, you've got to celebrate his work. Verses 27 through 43 in chapter 12. This is the dedication of the wall. So this is all about a big party. So if you guys like to party, well, here you go. Verse 27. In case the last 45 minutes weren't enough partying for you. Here's more partying. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Neto Phaethites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after, they were, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. So picture this foot, this thing's like miles wide, and Nehemiah is bringing them on top of the wall for this ceremony, this big celebration. And it's like nine feet wide in places, up to 40 feet tall in places. And one goes counterclockwise, one goes clockwise, and they're walking with trumpets, having this big parade, just partying like crazy. Um, it's a beautiful thing. You see, obviously, um, the story of Jericho and marching around the walls, and the walls come down. Now they're on top of the walls because God has provided. With musical instruments, verse 36, and musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before him. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David. At the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east, the other choir 
of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house with me. Excuse me, stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priest, several of the priests, with their trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliziah, Uzziah, and the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. That's a key. He made, God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Okay, let's walk through this. We'll move quicker. Here's a celebration. That's all they did. They had one big celebration. So here's what, it, here's what they did. They had a ceremony. So they had like a big worship service. That was the first part in verse 27. Number two, they had gladness and thanksgiving and singing. This was all part of this big party. Verse 27 in verses 28 and 29, they had a corporate gathering. So some people like to just worship alone. They say, I'm going to go out to the woods. I'm going to worship. They had a corporate gathering. And although this was a special worship service, it's not unlike other worship services they had. Number four, they had cleansing. This is a buzzkill. Some of us think, wow, party. I've never been to a party where there was anything pure. If you've been to a high school or a college party, um, purity isn't one of the top five things you remember it for, is it? Um, but this was one where they were purified. Number five, they had a huge band. Why? I don't know. I threw that one in for the worship leaders. They just had a big band. In the same verses, we see they had structure. They had structure. Anyone here, let me flip that back in case you're going to write that down. They had cleansing. They had a huge band. Number six, they had structure. It was structured. It was organized. Number seven, they had a parade. Again, they're walking around that whole thing, having a big old blast, having a parade. Number eight, they sacrificed. So they sacrificed animals. Number nine, part of their celebration meant they had joy for everything from God. What a powerful thing. And number 10, this is a bonus one. No need for worship wars. I just threw that in there for fun. If you see this passage and you go through all the musical instruments, you see some denominations, they won't let you have musical instruments at all, right? Um, It's all throughout Scripture. Uh, some people, uh, I got a friend, a dear friend of mine who hates worship music, doesn't want it in churches. He's like, I just feel like that's such a modern thing. Man, look at King David. Look at them. They read King David's words. They read the Old Testament up until that point, And this is their response to it. They're having a huge blast with tons of singers, tons of choirs. They sing hymns. They sing praises. So if you like the, the, the 1990s worship wars of, well, is it hymns or is it praises? Man, both of them are biblical. And so we can just throw that whole uh, worship war thing out the window. Let's get practical here. How do you and I celebrate? This is crucial. If you want to be committed to the kingdom of God, you've got to get used to celebrating the things of God. Um, This is a joy. This is a right. We get to do this. We get to remember the things of God. In our staff meetings, every Monday morning, our leadership team comes together, and we started off with prayer. The first 15, 20 minutes, we just pray. We take as long as we need, and we just pray for the people. We pray by, for people by name. Uh, we, we pray in general for people. We just pray for the church. But the second thing we do, and this is the second longest part of our meeting, 
um, celebration. And I simply say, usually someone brings some food or something, and we just celebrate. We eat, we have a good time. And I say, what did we see God doing? And we, everything, we just pick apart everything we saw in the last seven days of God doing in the hearts of the people. And we just celebrate and praise God. That might be, outside of prayer, that might be the most important part of our meetings. It keeps us excited. It keeps us passionate. It keeps us thinking forward. It keeps us focused on the things that matter. Um, and it sets the tone for the whole meeting. So here's some ways from this passage that I think we, um, we can see that we can celebrate. Number one, intentionally. They didn't just decide randomly, hey, let's just wake up today and do this. It was planned. Celebration is planned. You've got to be intentional. If you don't, you know the heart of man if you're anything like me, I will go negative. I'm a pessimist. I got very little hope for humanity in and of themselves. I got tons of hope in the gospel. But I find myself just saying, eh, man, we're wicked. We're, we're sinful, broken people. And I will focus on the negative. What about you? Do you focus on the negative? Or do you intentionally say, I'm going to focus on what God has done. I'm going to celebrate God. Number two, got to do it in remembrance. So many times we bargain with God, don't we? God, if you just pay my bills, I'll devote myself to you as a servant for the rest of my life. God, if you just do this. What we celebrate God for, even though he's going to do some amazing things in the future, is what he's done in the past. He's already done enough to blow our minds. He's God. So what we do is in remembrance of his awesomeness, what he's done. Number three, with meditation. You know the old saying about worry? It's... um. It's just meditation gone wrong, right? It's, it's uh, focused on things in our own strength. And meditation, uh, in the Christian sense, is focusing on the things of Christ, the things of God. You meditate, you dwell on the things of God. You read the Word in the morning. Don't just read the Word and then go to work. And be thinking about that throughout the day. Let it chew on that. Let it come back up and meditate on God's Word throughout the day. Um, let me ask you this just as a litmus test. If, how many of you guys read the word in the morning in general? Anybody? A few of you? If someone asked you at night what you read in the morning and how you applied it, would you be able to tell them? How quick do we forget? Meditate on it. Let it sink in to your heart. Number four, with praises. We praise God. You can think all day long in your mind, and it's beautiful and it's good to do. God has done this. God has been faithful. God is awesome. I'm trying to be committed to him because he's always been committed to me. We think about God and his awesomeness all the time. Verbalize it. Verbalize it. Verbalize it. Let it come out of your mouth. That brings him glory. It brings him glory for you to do it in your heart. It brings him glory for you to do it with your mouth. But be praising him because you set the standard for the people around you as well. Number five, in repentance. It said in there that they purified themselves. When you worship God, when you celebrate God, it should lead to your life being changed because he's unchanging. We're forever changing because he's never changing. And so holiness is a part of celebrating God. That if God is who he said he is, if the gospel is really that good, I should be changed. But by very nature, when I'm changed, it's a way of me celebrating God and his power. And two last ones here. We celebrate by joining his work. I'll tell you what. If I'm living in a surrounding city and I see a bunch of people standing on a wall 40 feet tall 
walking around with trumpets, going nuts, singing and praising this God so that the joy of Jerusalem, is what it says, could be heard from everywhere around. I'm either saying, y'all are crazy, or I'm saying, I want to be a part of that party. And so joining God in his work is a way of celebrating what he's done because then it continues. And number seven, this is maybe my favorite, enjoying his joy. You know one way that you celebrate what God's done? Is you just receive it. You just enjoy it. You think about the cross. It's a beautiful thing to tell other people about the cross. But are you enjoying your forgiveness of sin? Are you sitting there? And and how are you handling your own failures? Are you saying, you know what? I screw up. And I know I'm not as committed as I should be. But man, what's the point? So you just keep screwing up. Or do you say, oh, I I screw up. And you sit in a prison of guilt. Or do you say, you know what? I have screwed up, but God is perfect. He is good. People say maturity isn't that you don't make mistakes anymore. We're always going to make mistakes. Some sins you're not going to make anymore as you mature. But maturity is lessening the distance between your sin and repentance. Because when you're a brand new believer and you screw up and you think, oh, I'm insecure in my faith. God probably hates me now. Sometimes you can run from Christians and the word of God for weeks. And then that time lessens and it lessens and it lessens. And you feel like, well, I can't even go to a church worship service. Well, the way I'm living. And then it lessens and you find yourself turning from your sins. But you also find yourself, when you do make mistakes, realizing God has forgiven you. God loves you. He's not abandoning you. To the point where when you make mistakes today, you realize, okay, it's not over. God's still God. The gospel's still good. He still forgives. Just enjoying that work. The very last thing here. Three or four more verses. You guys are troopers. You've hung in. Verse 44 says, On that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, There were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Okay, last thing we see. A long obedience in the same direction. There's an old Eugene Peterson book called a long obedience in the same direction. Here's the big idea. The party's over, but it ends with this. It says, in the days of David, this is what happened. And now, in the days of Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, the guy who helped build the temple with, with Ezra, they're doing all the same stuff. 500 years earlier, they set this stuff up and said, this is how we're going to praise God. We're going to sing. We're going to have parties like this. And now they're saying, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep doing it. This is the beauty when you see the big picture of Scripture like I mentioned earlier and you see yourself as part of a whole line of people wanting to follow God. So they're settling in for the long haul. You see, following Jesus is adventurous 
It changes you. It's reorienting your life. One of the things we don't talk much about, it's all throughout Scripture. Words like perseverance and steadfastness. And the joy of consistency. We tend to be a fickle people. People come up to you each day, what do they say? How are you doing today? Because we know how we're doing today and how we're doing tomorrow might be completely different. How we're doing this morning and how we're doing a few minutes later might be completely different. But God's calling us to consistency in our relationship with him and our service to him and our devotion to him, knowing that we have ups and downs and we fail, but we are on a long, obedient journey in the same direction. That's the direction of Christ. We're always going there. When you fall, you get up and you keep moving towards Christ. When you get off track, you go back and you head towards Christ. You always have to set your eyes to Christ and you set your focus. And ultimately, that's the hope from this passage. These people came face to face with their sin and realized they were way more sinful than they ever realized. They could have sat there and just mourned and never got up. But they didn't. They mourned and said, but let's do what's right. If you go back and you remember what the leaders did, it said they taught them and they pulled them up several chapters earlier and said, now do what's right. Do what's right. I, um, I'll, just, I'll just leave you with this um, quick thought. I had a buddy one time, he was in a marriage that he wanted to work he wanted to work out desperately. He was struggling. His wife cheated on him over and over and over and over and over. And he couldn't, he couldn't wrap his mind around the infidelity and the adultery. And One day he called me on the phone and he said, Ryan, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, man, you got you to choose. Do you want to stay in this or not? And he said, I do. I love her. But I just know that all my friends think I'm crazy. And I said, well, you know what you got, and you know what it's going to be like to stick it out. And he said, but I got I to gotta do it. I got to stick it out. I said, man, years from now, if this marriage, even though this covenant seems ripped to shreds right now, if this thing works out, and I'm praying and praying, and we are working, working, working to try to make this thing work out, you're going to realize that in this moment when she was still cheating on you, and she knew it, and you knew it, but you stayed with her, that you were reflecting the hardest part of the gospel. You see, we all want to reflect the parts where it's easy to be faithful. Life is good. Spouse is doing good. Kids are doing good. Bills are paid. Job's all right. So I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm going to be faithful to the people around me. No one wants to reflect the part where everything is lost. Everything's broken. Marriage should end. Most people would end it. Most people would choose to end it. And it doesn't seem like the brokenness is through yet. And you stand firm and you reflect God's side of the story. Just like Hosea, who married a prostitute so God could show Israelites this is y'all, but I'm the one who still chooses you. And it's my faithfulness that will compel you back to me. That's what my buddy was doing in that marriage. Now that marriage is still in the works. Whether or not it would last, we'll see. 
But man, I got great hope that it does because he's showing a beautiful portrait of the gospel. Everyone around him would say he was crazy. But that's what God does with us because he loves us. We're committed to his kingdom because he is always committed to us. Let's pray.